Well, as I said to Richard and Carol, it's one of those affirmation stories we'll all tell our kids and our descendants. And remember that day. <clears throat> no heat in the building. Well, well, today uh, we're continuing, as I've mentioned, the, the theme of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and as we mentioned, that to do this and carry it on throughout the, the, uh, the year, and we'll take this up till after Easter, um, we were going through the text, looking at how to read the Old Testament in such a way that we see Christ in it and that we, uh, we, we understand the work of Christ by the Old Testament and we understand the Old Testament by Christ. So we've been looking at various texts, but then we were skipping over some, um, and then we came back to some of the birth narratives for Advent, and now we'll be coming back to some of the um, sacrificial passages, passages about death, passages about sin, in the season of Lent, the, as you know, the church calendar has contained within it seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. And both of these are important for the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not just one big feast because we live in an age of brokenness. Religion, we live in an age that still hang, has a curse hanging over it. Right? We still weep. We still go through sorrow. We're still at war with our own sin. And so, so it, can't be, it can't be all feasting. That would be silly. And Christians that do that, that it always tries to make everything happy, 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 just are not grounded in reality. And they haven't read their Bibles because that's just not how the Bible operates. Read the Psalms. But at the same time, the Christian church should not be all fasting because we don't merely live in an age that is under the curse. But we're in Christ, and in Christ the curse has been broken, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places, and we have a real hope, not a wish, a hope that is even now existing, right? We In Christ we are a new creation, and therefore we must feast in anticipation of the great feast, the wedding feast that is to come. And so the church calendar traditionally has done well to take us into times of fasting and heaviness, times where we come to grips with our sin times where we come to grips with our mortality, heavy times, and at the same time leads us into times of celebration and feasting. Well, Lent is one of those times of fasting, and we take this time to set our minds on our sin, on our mortality, you know, Ash Wednesday, you know, the idea of ashes is a symbol of repentance, it's a symbol of mortality, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Um, <clears throat> and we, again, you might ask, well, why would... Why would you want to dwell on that? Because we need to. Just like why dwell on our sin? Because we need to. We need to We need to remember how the good news of the resurrection. The resurrection is great news because you're going to die. Christ is great news because you're a sinner. You're going to come under his judgment. And we need to deal with the heavy things to, to rejoice in the sweet things. So we'll be going back and looking at some of the passages that help us in this Lenten focus, this Lenten journey. So our first text today is Genesis chapter 15, a passage that we skipped over as we were going through the story of Abram, <clears throat> but such a fundamental passage. You could not do a study of Christ in the Old Testament and skip uh, Genesis 15. And the text has been read for us, and I want us to come back, think briefly about the context of it. I want us to think about the ceremony that's contained within it, and then I want us to think about the participants of this text, so let's let's just get our mind back to the to the uh, context of this passage. 
Abram, you know, has come in the land. The Lord has called him out of Ur. He separated him from his family in Genesis 12. Abram, you're my man. Go to the land that I, <clears throat> excuse me, that I, I have for you. And he has sent Abram out and brought him to Canaan. But this land is a land filled with seven nations. You heard them all mentioned at the end of the text. And Abram's wandering around the land, and by faith he's building altars and acknowledging the fact that this land is a land that the Lord is going to give to him. But nonetheless, it's, it's challenging. And, and Abram has a couple challenges. In Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember the Lord made a promise to him, you're my man, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Through you, all nations will be blessed. And now I'm going to give you this land. But Abram's got a couple problems. You've got giants in the land. You've got all these kingdoms that already occupy the land. It seems unlikely that Abram, though he's a wealthy and powerful man, uh, would be able to inherit this land. And then also, you told him he's going to be a great nation, but he has no heir. He and Sarah have been unable to have children. And as he says in this text, my heir is one of my servant's children. I'm going to have to leave everything to one of my servant's children. I, 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 have no, I have no heir. Well, in this text, the Lord says, reminds him again, I'm going to do it for you, Abram. Come on out here. Brings him outside. Look at the stars of the sky. Count them if you're able. And so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believes the Lord, and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. A beautiful picture of how salvation works, right? What was righteousness to Abram? What did he do to be considered righteous? Nothing. But believe the promises of God, and so it is with us. We believe the promises of God, and it is counted to us as righteousness. As I said at the assurance of pardon today, you will stand before the bar of God's justice. But if you're going in there with what you've done, if you're going in there by the works of your hand saying, okay, I know I'm going to have to stand before God one day, so let me start doing stuff so I have something to offer him when he says, what do you have to show for your life? And that's what you're going in there with. If what you think is going to get you past the bar of God's justice is your excellence, your good works, your personal righteousness, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. You know me. I better not go in with me. But what is it that will count Bill Spanger righteous? It will be nothing of Bill Spanger, I assure you of that. But it will be because I have believed the promises of God. That he has told me about that he will give me the gift of salvation. And as I believe that, so it will be counted to me as righteousness. It's a beautiful Old Testament text that points us forward. And Paul draws on this in Romans chapter 4. So it's a very important point of the text. Then the Lord goes on to tell him, and I'm going to give you this land from the sea all the way out to the river Euphrates. Right? I'm going to give you all this land. And Abram asks him a question, but Lord, how shall I know? Like that's, a, that's a big promise. It's an outrageous promise that you're going to give me, this one guy, this land that's occupied by seven nations more powerful than I. And he asks the Lord, how shall I know? I always think about this because in the, in the Old Testament, when people ask questions like that, I always think it's amazing the Lord doesn't just say, how dare you ask me? You know, if I say it, if I tell you I'm going to do this for you, and you say, yeah, but Lord, how can I know for sure? Well, you know for sure because I'm telling you. I'm God. But over and over again, the Lord condescends in amazing humility 
and gives confirmation to his promises. You, you can think of other texts like this. You can think of Gideon, who has to go fight the Midianites, and the Lord calls him to do it and says, I'm going to give you victory. And he says, ah, okay, 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 I, 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 I believe it. But Lord, I would love a sign. And the Lord says, okay, fine, you know, lay the fleece out here. Or, or Gideon says, how about if I do this? How about if I, I lay a fleece out? And then if you could just, when the dew comes, the, the dew would be on there, but not on the fleece. The fleece would be dry, but the ground would be just soaked with dew. But then I would know. And he says, okay. Wakes up the next morning, the, the fleece is dry, the ground is dewy, and there. Now, go. Gideon says, wow, that is that really was good. Um, but I'll tell you what, you know what would really seal the deal for me? <laughs> is if tonight the fleece would be dewy and the ground would be dry. <laughs> and God, you know, you would think God would, I know what I would do. I'd be like, all right, you're done. All right, now, who else is going to be my servant? Who, who now will I send to go fight the Midianites? <laughs> but God, God is so much more patient than I am. And he's like, all right, Gideon, we'll go through this one more night. And the next night, so it is. And this happens again and again, right? You know with Moses, right? Moses going into the land. We looked at this passage. And Moses is going to go in and talk to Pharaoh. And he says, what, what am I going to do when I get there? And they say they don't believe me. Like I was talking to a bush that was on fire in the wilderness. This is going to be a hard sell. And, he, you know, I got to get back in the land. And I'm going to say, hey, guys, we're going to go march out of here. It's going to be a really, really hard sell. And they're not going to believe me. And God doesn't say, well, what do you mean they're not going to believe you? you? You tell them the Lord God does. And if they don't believe you, you know, fine, I'll smoke them. Uh, no, that's not what happens, right? He says, all right, do this. Uh, take your staff and throw it on the ground. It turns into a snake. And then pick it back up. It turns into a staff. And Moses says, okay, that is good. But is there anything else? <laughs> like, that, that would, that, that's going to, that, you're right, that is going to be impactful. But, and he says, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Put your hand in your jacket. Pull it out. It's leprous. Put it back in. It's It's healed. <laughs> Okay, that is also very good. And then, okay, then if we need one more, you know, strike the Nile, it'll become blood. Uh, you know, again, I'm amazed by this. I, I'm amazed that God, the Almighty God, who does not need to give, like, support for his claims, nonetheless condescends. He's so gracious to come and to cater to our weakness. And so also here, Abram gets this amazing promise and he said, but how am I going to know? And the Lord says, all right, get me. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to need here. I'm going to need a heifer. <laughs> now, now, this is where, at this point in the story, it loses us pretty quickly. Because Abram says, look, how can I possibly know? And the Lord says, okay, here's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need a heifer. I'm going to need a ram. I'm going to need a goat and a pigeon. And what else? What else is there? A dove or something. A pigeon and something. A turtle dove. Yeah, a turtle dove. This is what I'm going to need. And Abram asks no questions. He knows right what is going on here. He's tracking with the Lord. And we are not tracking with him. We're thinking that's a very, very unusual thing for the Lord to do. <clears throat> but Abram is tracking. So, so the context is Abram's concern, the covenantal promise, and now God is going to do something very dramatic with Abraham. And he is going to establish a covenant he is going to take an oath a covenantal binding oath with abram condescending to him not condescending in the bad way we use we use the word i i use it 
in the good sense. But, you know, you, oftentimes when we use the word condescend, we always think, oh, you're being condescending. But condescending is a good thing. It means to descend with, right, to come down to you. We don't like it because we don't like anybody thinking they're above us. <laughs> so, you know, if, if somebody condescends to me, I feel put off by that because it's like you're speaking to me in a condescending way. But when God condescends, it's a good thing because he is above you. And so when he comes down to you, when he, when he comes down alongside of you, when he caters to your weaknesses, that's unbelievably gracious. So I, I better make that point. I don't, want to use, I don't want you to hear condescending in a negative way. I don't want to be condescending. All right, but but con- God condescends. He comes down to be with Abram in this case, and he offers this covenantal oath. And what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here is a binding, just like our marriages. Okay, marriage is a covenantal oath that is taken. We are bound, right? This isn't like okay, hey, we just make a little side deal, and if it works out, great. If it does, no, 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 we take vows. We put rings on fingers. We get witnesses there. We sign things. We, we, we have a minister or a judge say, it's done. I declare it. You know, this is man and wife. And that has legal implications now for the rest of our lives. That's, that's a binding oath. And that's what is about to happen here. This is, this God, while he doesn't have to do this, not only just says, I'm going to do these things for you, but now he, he is going to bind himself in a covenantal oath. So, let's jump to the ceremony and think about the ceremony that, again, you've, probably, you've heard this text before, so you know where it's going, but, but if we just read it first glance, we, we get lost pretty quickly because what's going on with this ram, this bull, you know, this goat. But the ceremony that takes place here was common to Abram. It would have been common among the kings of the land It was the way that one king deals with another king, especially when a land was conquered. The two kings would come together, the conquering king standing above the the conquered king, and they would make basically demands. Well, the conquering king would make the demands. He said, look, here's the way it's going to be. You're now going to be my vassal. You're living in my kingdom, and here's the way it's going to be now. You're going to do this. Here's the tribute you're going to pay me. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And then once the terms of the covenant, once the terms of the treaty were there and established, they would take these animals, same, same thing, Abram knows what's going on here. They cut the animals in half, very dramatic, right? more, than, more than just a handshake or a, a signing of a contract or something, very dramatic. You cut these animals, very bloody, a lot of carnage, lay them out in a pathway, a very bloody, gross pathway of half an animal over here, half the animal over there, laid out in a row. And then the deal would be made. Say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Here's the terms now of us moving forward. And then the two kings would march through there together in the presence of witnesses. And the idea being, what, what was being communicated in this was, if we do not keep our side of the deal, may we become like these animals. Very dramatic. If, if, if you don't pay your tribute, then guess what? You're going to end up like that bull right there. So you, you'll keep your side of the deal. <clears throat> and they'd pass through together, or sometimes just the vassal king would have to pass through. I'm the conquering king. I'm not going to bind myself to this. But you, pass through there. This is the way it's going to be. 
So God brings Abram out and he shows him the stars in the sky. And Abram says, but how can I know? How can I know this is going to happen? It seems so unlikely. We're getting a lot older. Sarah hasn't been able to have a baby. How am I going to have an heir? How are we going to inherit this land? All these questions he has. He does trust the Lord and the Lord credits it to him as righteousness. And the Lord says, okay, let's do it. Here's how you'll know. Let's form a covenant. Get me these animals, bring them out, and let's go. Now, Abram is troubled by this. You see this over on the next page there when, in verse 12, the sun goes down. And so we have this happening. Apparently, this is Abram's gathering the animals during the day for this elaborate ceremony, this covenantal ceremony, where now we're going to pledge ourselves to to get this done. And you see that now it comes in darkness. In verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So again, we're just reading this, and it's, it's hard to track with because we would wonder, why, why is horror coming upon him? If, if, if uh, the Lord says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate my promises to you, why would darkness and deep horror? Well, on the one hand, Abram, I think, is troubled by the fact that now, you know, again, the way this normally worked is the suzerain or the, the, the head king would have the lesser king make the promises and walk through. And it might be that Abraham is assuming here, uh-oh, I've asked too much now. I've pushed the Lord too far. I've asked, Lord, how am I going to know? And he says, well, here's how you're going to know, because we're going to make a vow, and you're going to walk through the bloody pathway, and you're going to commit yourself to getting it done. That's how we know we're going to do it. So perhaps that's why horror falls upon him. But he does kind of fall into this deep sleep, but it's interesting that it's in darkness and dread that this ceremony takes place, not in the brightness of day, not with the birds chirping, but the context of this ceremony is darkness and dread. I mean, the the bloody animals does kind of create a negative scene. But you would think, on one hand, this would be a joyous occasion. God is pledging himself and saying, look, I'm committing. I've made amazing promises to you. You believe me. And now I'm committing myself. You would think this would be a bright thing, but it's not. Dreadful, dark, fear comes upon Abram with what he is witnessing as the clouds come over him, sun sets, darkness sets in. Now, as the ceremony takes place, and here's where we need to begin to draw this to Christ, there are a few surprises. For Abraham and for us, if we're tracking along, there's a few things that would make us raise an eyebrow and really, and and I think, provide some pretty interesting surprises. The first surprise is who goes through the, you know, through the uh, uh, the bloody pieces. Because Abram, you'll see, falls on a deep sleep. Um, now, when the sun was going down, behold, a deep sleep, horror, great darkness. Then God said to Abram, <clears throat> "No, certainly." that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. They'll serve them and be afflicted for 400 years. The nation they serve, I will judge. So God is now reiterating the promises. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried. But in the fourth generation, I'm going to bring them back. So here's God restating, this is the promise I make for you. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I'm going to give you all this land. 
So Abram in the darkness, dread comes over him. The Lord repeats the promises. And then Abram looks in the, this vision and this smoking oven and this flaming torch pass between the pieces. But Abram is sitting there as a bystander. And the first shock of this text is who it is that passes between the pieces because the one that passes between the pieces is God. Now, again, if you're just reading, you're like, what, a, a, a smoking oven and a flaming torch? What's going on here? But we only need to remember what we've already thought about in the book of Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings about the way that God has led his people out of Egypt. You'll remember that he moved in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. These images are divine images. Right? When, when, the, when, the, when the Egyptian army was coming out to meet the Israelites who were camped by the Red Sea and they're trapped there, remember the Lord comes between them in the pillar of fire. These images are divine images. This is God himself symbolized in these images passing between the pieces. This is God himself saying to Abram, you've asked how you will know for sure. Okay, here's how you will know. I'll sign my name. I'll give you a ring. I myself will pass through the pieces. The, the, the leader king, in this case, will pass through the pieces and say and pledge that if I do not keep my promises to you, may I, the immutable, immortal God, May I myself be made like these animals. That's how you can know, Abram. And it's interesting that it's done in a context of darkness and dread. So that's the first shock. The first shock is that God himself, Abram, Abram is the one who could, should be going down the pieces. He's the lesser king. He's the one that God could be making all these demands of and saying, now go and show me you're committed. But that's not what happens. God himself passes between the pieces. And so the second shock of this text is who doesn't go through. Abram doesn't even walk through the pieces. Abram just merely is a bystander. Abram is just witnessing. That is to say that in some sense, there are no demands bound in blood placed upon Abram directly. This promise, if this promise is to be fulfilled, God himself is bearing full responsibility to meet the promise. Abram simply witnesses it. Filled with dread, feeling the darkness of the thing. We'll get to why. Why is there such darkness? But he just merely witnesses it. That's the second shock of this. This is not how these treaties work. These treaties work. If, if only one person passes through, well, it, it's usually the lesser king or the, you know, the conquered person. But in this case, he does not. He merely watches and observes. But then the third shock. If we allow ourselves to be shocked by this text, the first shock is that God at all goes through the pieces. The second shock is that Abram does not go through the pieces. But then the third shock is this, that God goes through the pieces not in a singular image, it's not as if just a flaming torch goes through there and you're like, oh, like the pillar of fire. Oh, God, okay. So God is committing himself to keep his promise. Okay, that would be, that would be amazing that God would condescend to make such a commitment. And okay, Abram didn't do it. Okay. But the third 
and most amazing shock of this text is that God alone goes through the pieces, but he goes through in two images. He goes through as a flaming torch and as a smoking oven. That is, he goes through for both sides of the covenant. God goes through the pieces for himself, but he also goes through for Abram. Abram is really just an observer, but it's not that Abram doesn't have anything to do. It's just that God will bear responsibility for himself and God will bear responsibility for Abram. God will bear responsibility for the fullness of his covenantal promises. Everything that's dependent upon him, he will do, and everything that is dependent upon Abram, God will take responsibility for. Now, we might say, well, Bill, maybe you're reading a little too much into this text. All we see is a flaming torch and a smoking oven, two things passing through, images for God. But then again, we need to read this text with Christ-centered eyes. We need to read this text with the lenses of Jesus Christ because it is in the crucifixion or in the trial, in even the breaking of the bread at the Last Supper that Jesus takes, I believe, this story onto himself. Who is it that is broken on the cross? Who is it that goes to the cross? Is it not God and man? Is it not the God-man? Is this what we spent time talking about in our last table talk? Jesus Christ is the one who in himself takes on both sides of the covenant. He is the one who ensures the promises on the one hand, and he is the one who bears the judgment for the failings on the other hand. It's Jesus who in the upper room, as he's preparing to go to the cross and giving his disciples a picture of what's about to happen, gives them the meal that we have the privilege to enjoy today, holds the bread up and says dramatically, this is my body broken for you. This is my body. This is God as Abram becoming like the animals for his failings in order that God might keep his promises. It's an amazing display of, you talk about condescension. This is God becoming man so that he can fulfill man's side of the covenant. But because man's a failure, he needs to be broken in two. He needs to bear the judgment And even at this, even in chapter 15, the darkness that comes down upon this event, is it not a pointer forward to that day when this covenantal promise is ultimately fulfilled? I know this is a promise about the land and, and, oh, Abram, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give you an heir. But even the land, the land is like a, a little foretaste. It's a little pointer of the new heavens and new earth. But the dread that comes over Abram is a sign that this is not going to be a bright, brilliant moment, right? The fulfilling of these covenantal promises is going to come through darkness and through dread. And at Golgotha, that's exactly how it all goes down. The sky grows dark. 
we feel the dread of this moment as God himself now comes down and has to deal with the covenantal judgments of Genesis 15. God bearing our flesh has his body broken so that we get to do what we're doing here. Sitting and observing. We observe. And not only that, but we feast. We're going to take this bread shortly that Jesus used as a picture to help us understand what he's doing and we're going to feast on it. We're going to we're not just observers, we actually get to enjoy the blessings and benefits of his sacrifice. We enjoy the blessings and benefits of his being broken for us. I'll die, you eat. What do we have to do? It's like Abraham. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. I mean, this is the amazing nature of the gospel. You know what it depends on you? Not one bit. We believe, and even that belief we know is a gift of God's grace to us. You earn nothing. You achieve nothing before him in his judgment. There's nothing you do to escape the wrath and judgment of God. God has taken it all on himself. His side of the deal and your side of the deal. And he has paid for your sins fully upon the cross, his body being broken for you, and he has given you all that is required of you in order to be acceptable to him. This is the good news of the gospel. Everything from beginning to end, curse and reward, all of it is ours in Christ. And we get that in this amazing scene in Genesis 15 in the cutting of the covenant. I encourage you to go back and read it again. Think through it. It's a a short passage. Go back and read it and play with it in the sense of reading not only the the, celebration of the Lord's Supper that Jesus establishes in the upper room, but then also on the cross. As the sky grows dark and as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's broken for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. All that is required of you is freely given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you condescend to us in our weakness. We question your promises, yet you come to us and you are so faithful in binding yourself to those promises. We thank you for this amazing and dramatic scene in Genesis 15 in which you commit yourself to fulfilling it even if it cost you your son and his life. For you became through your son like the animals for us. That we, the sinners who deserve to be made like those animals, are made whole and allowed to feast. In this season of Lent, we pray that you would help us to reckon with the heavy things. That, Father, we might not do it in a morbid way, but that we might do it in such a way that causes us to celebrate with unbridled joy when we contemplate and reckon with your goodness, your grace, your salvation. Why would you, why would you, the eternally satisfied God, why would you become man to be made like these animals for us? Why would you do that? Yet you have. We thank you for it. So we give you all praise, honor, and glory in the name of Christ. Amen.